Please open your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 18. We'll continue studying during the reign of Jehoshaphat, verses 1 to 17 of this chapter. 2 Chronicles 18, verses 1 to 17. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. The chronicler writes, Now Jehoshaphat had great riches and honor, and and he made a marriage alliance with Ahab. And after some years, he went down to Ahab in Samaria. And Ahab killed an abundance of sheep and oxen for him and for the people who were with him and induced him to go up against uh, Ramoth-Gilead. Ahab, king of Israel, said to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, will you go with me to Ramoth-Gilead? He answered him, I am as you are, my people as your people. We will be with you in the war. And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, inquire first for the word of the Lord. Then the king of Israel gathered together the prophets, 400 men, and said to them, shall we go to battle against Ramoth-Gilead or shall I refrain? And they said, go up for God will give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here another prophet of the Lord with whom we may inquire? And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah the son of Imlah, but I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but always evil. And Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say so. Then the king of Israel summoned an officer and said, Bring quickly Micaiah the son of Imlah. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones, arrayed in their robes, and they were sitting at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And all the prophets were prophesying before them. And Zedekiah, the son of Chenaanath, let me try that one more time, Chenaanath made for himself horns of iron and said, Thus said the Lord, With these you shall push the Syrians until they are destroyed." And all the prophets prophesied so and said, Go up to Ramoth-Gilead and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. And the messenger who went to summon Micaiah said to him, Behold, the words of the prophet with one accord are favorable to the king. Let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, As the Lord lives, what my God says, that I will speak. And when he had come to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth-Gilead to battle, or shall I refrain? And he answered, Go up in triumph, they will be given into your hand. But the king said to him, How many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master, let each return to his home in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? The grass withers, the flowers fall, and the word of our God abides forever. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you for recording these ancient events that we might understand how to be your servants, that we might know how to live in the midst of a world that opposes your truth. Father, give us a faithful spirit like that of your servant Micaiah. Uh, Cause us to speak the truth of the word of God in our time. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.
the dramatic and instructive situation that unfolds in Second Chronicles chapter 18 was all Jehoshaphat's fault. Now that verdict may come as a surprise, since in the line of kings after David, Jehoshaphat is not only a hero, but probably he is the hero in the mind of the chronicler. Still, the embarrassing scene at King Ahab of Israel's court was Jehoshaphat's fault, and for two reasons. The first reason was that the alliance he brokered with his wicked northern cousin had brought him to Ahab's court in the first place. The second reason was that Jehoshaphat asked for a true prophet who might speak the word of the Lord. Well, in the events that unfolded, the action shifts from the two ill-matched kings to the solitary prophet who was courageous enough to proclaim God's word. The case of the prophet Micaiah was virtually a unique one. Certainly, it's, it's not the kind of thing that most of God's servants will experience today, not exactly in the details. And yet, whenever a follower of Christ speaks the truth of the Bible in the midst of an idolatrous world, he or she does, in fact, stand in the shoes of Micaiah, the son of Imlah, the son of Inlaw. And God will work through that faithful witness. In the words of Martin Selman, Micaiah's example shows that God fulfills his prophetic word despite all human efforts to the contrary. Now, this episode recorded in our chapter is paralleled by a similar, a parallel version in 1 Kings 22. And yet the purpose of the accounts differ because they have different audiences. They're, they're speaking to people in different situations. Now, since Kings was written to explain the calamity that befell God's people through sin and idolatry, the, the point of this meeting of the kings forms a, a series of confrontations that expose the corrupt character of wicked King Ahab. This is in the midst of his confrontations with the great prophet Elijah. And so it's really about Ahab in that case. But the chronicler is writing to those Jews who had returned to Jerusalem to be part of that restoration community after the Babylonian exile. And for them, the message of this chapter was not only on the importance of God's word being spoken, but also that it is heard and heeded with repentant hearts. I might summarize the lesson of this chapter in the words of the Apostle James he wrote in James 1, verse 12, Be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Well, the Bible shows that even the finest of believers can fall into the worst kind of folly. And in the annals of biblical foolhardiness, few, few events rival the sheer calamity of Judah's godly king Jehoshaphat in making an alliance with the wicked house of Ahab in Israel. That's our first point here, is the folly of King Jehoshaphat. Now the chapter begins with uh, what we now are used to as the normal results when a king is faithful to the Lord. And we read in verse 1, Jehoshaphat had great riches and honor. You see, he enjoyed the favor of the sovereign Lord of heaven, and so he did not need the compromises. He ended up making. Go back to Second Chronicles 17.10. We read that the fear of the Lord fell upon all the kingdoms of the lands that were around Judah, and they made no, no war against Jehoshaphat. You see, instead of attacking the house of David, they thought it wiser to pay tribute. That's, that's what it was like 
when they were faithful to the Lord and had his favor. So the question remains, how do we explain the second half of that sentence? And he made a marriage alliance with Ahab. Well, there are a number of plausible theories. One is it was a besetting sin of his household. Uh, it may have been that, like his father, he succumbed to the, the, the skillfulness that he possessed in human conniving and in strategies and diplomacy and, and those sorts of things. Certainly that was true of his father Asa. We don't know if that was true of Jehoshaphat, but that may have been a reason. After all, there had been about 50 straight years of warfare on their northern borders, and that situation will motivate people to do what it takes to bring an end to the strife and the bloodletting. A second of all, he may have become overconfident based on God's blessing, and he may have forgotten. We see this a lot in the Chronicler, that he may have forgotten that that blessing is contingent upon an obedient faith. That may be another reason. I think most scholars are right when they ascribe the folly of entering into this alliance to a sentimental naivete. It's a sentimental, ill-informed piety. And we can imagine Jehoshaphat musing, wouldn't it be a great achievement if the divided house of Israel could be joined once more into a single kingdom? That seems to be in accord with the word of God. Maybe this would be a way of doing it, a good end justifying wrong means if that was the case maybe he had grand dreams for his son Jehoram that he would become a second Solomon reigning in a united kingdom uh, together with the daughter of the house of Ahab well in any case he married his son to a woman who we will become familiar with her name is Athaliah she was the daughter not only of Ahab but of Jezebel, if that name rings a bell with anyone. And that would have united the houses. And so he entered in in this way. The point of the marriage was a treaty, a formal treaty involving military union. We'll see later that it was also economic support. Andrew Stewart writes, perhaps Jehoshaphat clung to the belief that although there were two kingdoms, there was still one covenant nation, Israel. Now, we see this idea years later when we read, a few years later after the alliance was made, Jehoshaphat is summoned by Ahab to join him in a prospective conquest. And here's what Jehoshaphat says in verse 3, I am as you are, my people as your people. We will be with you in the war. Now, we can imagine the wily Ahab encouraging this ecumenical spirit even while we know from kings that he was furiously warring against the greatest prophet, maybe of the entire Old Testament, Elijah, and he was viciously persecuting the true prophets in his own lands. A modern-day version would see a faithful Christian church making fellow cause with another church, even though it routinely denies the Bible, perhaps all because of a denominational heritage they once shared. We see the result would likely be a compromising of the godly church's witness, a threat to its continued fidelity to God's word. Certainly that is going to be the result through this foolish union with the house of Ahab. J.A. Thompson draws a lesson for avoiding Jehoshaphat's folly. He says the requirement to show Christian affability and fellowship must be balanced with discernment and fidelity to God's truth. Well, that's a balanced, I think, assessment. 
Now, we're going to find in chapter 19 that a prophet named Jehu is a little less charitable. He's going to confront Jehoshaphat for this union with these words, cutting to the chase, should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? That is a question that begs the answer, no, he should not have done so. Now, let's be clear, it's a good thing for Christians with relatively minor differences to join together in the shared cause of service to Christ. But it is an altogether different and foolish thing for faithful believers to ally themselves with the ungodly simply because they bear the label of Christians. I'm referring to those who openly abandon the authority of God's word, who have forsaken the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ, or who promote a a manifestly ungodly immorality that is denounced in Scripture. In those cases, it is sheer folly for ecumenical union. Now, one of the chronicler's likely concerns is to comment in this passage on the matter of intermarriage with nonbelievers. Now, why do I say that? Well, because we know from the book of Ezra, which is around the same time, that there was a serious problem of this nature within the restoration community in Jerusalem. Open your Bible, not now, but later to Ezra 9, and you'll read quite a lot from Ezra about that calamity. He he saw intermarriage with unbelievers as such a deadly threat to the very survival of the nation that he actually led them in a public act of repentance one of the great assemblies of public lament and repentance, and he severely disciplined those who offended. You may say, well, that's an Old Testament perspective. Well, not if the Apostle Paul is consulted. He took the same strident stand against spiritual intermarriage, writing in 2 Corinthians 6.14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness on what, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Now that command for Christians not to marry with non-Christians uh, remains today for followers of Christ. We are forbidden from Jehoshaphat's folly, however much romantic interest we may have, whatever supposed advantages we might gain from marriage with an unbeliever, we have been bought with a price. And belong to Jesus. Now, this arranged marriage between Jehoshaphat's son and heir Jehoram and Athaliah, the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, will provide a prime biblical illustration. Now, I think Jehoshaphat might have had an answer to this. He might have said, Oh, but not so fast. She actually is an Israelite. And she is a member of one of the tribes of of the northern kingdom. They are Israelites together with us, but not. The chronicler would tell us, not when they had irrevocably broken covenant with the Lord through apostasy and committed themselves to false gods and idols. Ahab was an implacable apostate who had fully committed himself against the ways of the Lord. A daughter raised in his pagan faith could only be an unsuitable mother of Judah's future kings, as events will amply show. Now, the original readers of Chronicles would have known quite a lot about Ahab and Jezebel. Perhaps that's why uh, there's, not, there's, there's no introduction needed. There's no, oh, by the way, here's who Ahab and Jezebel are. All through Chronicles, he assumes that you've read Kings. Uh, what today's readers may lose sight of is that Ahab was not a kind of goofy, foolish sinner. 
He was actually a great political military figure in his generation. And he had recently come off a stunning success as a major player in a military uh, uh, coalition. If the date is around 853 to 852 BC, that's probably about right. Ahab had just participated in the great battle of Karkar, in which a coalition primarily consisting of Israel and Aram, had fought the mighty Assyrian Shalmaneser III to a standstill. It's actually an important event in the history of that period when the the rising tide of Assyria was checked and one of the key leaders in that great battle was none other than this Ahab. Now, with that victory having been accomplished, he wanted to turn the tide against his erstwhile ally, Ben-Hadad of Aram, he, because they were former Israelite lands that were under uh, Aram, that's Syria, under their control. And so we read in verse 3, Ahab, king of Israel, said to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, will you go up with me to Ramoth-Gilead? Now, 1 Kings 22.3 gives another detail of that conversation, that, and it shows again the the manipulative ecumenism, false church unity, by which he enticed Jehoshaphat. We read in Second First Kings, do you know that Ramoth-Gilead belongs to us? It's ours. And we keep quiet and do not take it out of the hand of the king of Syria. Now the suggestion is, well, why we have a, a spiritual duty to God to stand together to take this land back. Now what he didn't mention was his undoubted financial and commercial interests. Ramoth Gilead, about 25 miles east of the Jordan, way out of Judah's territory, happened to stand astride a major intersection on one of the most important caravan routes in that region. Dale Ralph Davis summarizes Ahab's real motive. He says, it's a shame to have a turnpike running through a place if you aren't the one sitting in the toll booth. Well, Ahab wanted the toll booth. That's what this was really about. But he cynically presented the matter as an appeal to covenant fidelity. And in that way, he motivated, we might even say entrapped, unwary Jehoshaphat. Verse 4, Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Well, as we reflect on this scenario that begins the action in this chapter, we're reminded that we are not to stray from biblical commandments. Whether we're motivated by a worldly pragmatism, that would have been Asa, Jehoshaphat's father, it was in a, in a worldly pragmatism. He justified the wrong, the right ends or a good end with ungodly means. But we must also not disobey God's commands out of a sentimental piety. A sentimental piety. If Christians, for instance, send their children to the summer camps of unbelieving churches, they should not be surprised if they can take into heart seeds that will later sprout into unbelief. We again are especially urged to heed the Bible's call to marriage only within the faith. Because of his naive folly, Jehoshaphat's great reign, and what a great reign and blessed reign it is, as Judah's king would be followed not by ongoing years of godliness and prosperity, but one of the bloodiest errors of usurpation and violence in the nation's entire history. 
We had this foolish compromise, the folly of King Jehoshaphat. Now, it seems clear that Aram and Ahab really wanted to regain Ramoth-Gilead. And to that end, he really wanted Jehoshaphat to lend the support of his armies. And so he goes out of his way to put on a, a spectacle here that's calculated to impress a man like Judah's godly king. We read in verse 2 that when Jehoshaphat went down, what did he find them doing? But, but sacrificing sheep and oxen uh, on their behalf. I can see the, the, the false prophets of Ahab dragging out copies of the Torah. Let's, let's try to get this right. We want to win the support of King Jehoshaphat. And moreover, we read that two thrones were set up side by side at the entrance of the gate of Samaria. Now again, this ecumenical impulse, we're going to reunite them without actually bringing true faith. And there on those thrones at the gates of the city sat the two kings in their regal finery. If Jehoshaphat harbored dreams of reuniting the sundered nation. Oh, the scene must have been very appealing. And yet it does seem that the godly king's conscience was troubling him. We can almost imagine saying, what have I forgotten? To consult the word of the Lord. And he remembers at least how he should be acting as a believing king. And, And so having first initially almost impulsively agreeing to join Ahab in the conquest, He recovers and he asks of him in verse 4, inquire first for the word of the Lord. Uh, By the way, it's better to do that before committing yourself, but better late than never. Well, inquiry into God's word would have enabled him to avoid the entire compromise in which he was now seated. But at least he remembered God enough to consult his word. Now, I've learned as a pastor to note the difference between a, a church member who consults me and asks me to consult the Bible and to pray with him after a decision is made versus one who asks me to do it with him prior to the decision being made. Let me exhort you to the latter strategy rather than the former. It produces better results. Well, Ahab was happy to oblige. After all, he had no less than 400 prophets in his own employ. These prophets probably spoke often in the name of Baal or Asherah. Those are the idols worshipped in Ahab's house, although they had the sense on this occasion to claim to speak on behalf of Yahweh. Yahweh is the covenant name in Hebrew of Israel's true God. And to no one's surprise, when they began prophesying, they agreed completely with with the plans and intentions of their royal paymaster. Ahab asked this throng of prophets, uh, I think the, the principle here is, if you don't have quality, go for quantity. And so he asked these 400, shall we go up to battle against Ramoth-Gilead, or shall I refrain? And, and in one voice they acclaimed him, go up, for God will give it into the hand of the king, verse 5. Darav Davis comments, these are prophets who speak in Yahweh's name, verse 11, claim to have Yahweh's spirit, verse 24, promise Yahweh's success, verse 12, and can apparently, it seems, deliver Yahweh's word, verse 5. The problem is they did not have Yahweh's authority. 
That was the problem. Rather, they spoke on behalf of King Ahab as they were paid to do in support of his counsels. Now, we're given here a, a telling example that's provided by the outlandish behavior of one of these prophets. His name is Zedekiah, the son of Chenaanah. Now, this vigorous imposter, we read in verse 10, made for himself horns of iron and said, Thus says the Lord, with these you shall push the Syrians until they are destroyed. And at that, the other prophets, they affirmed the claim. They cried out, Go up to Ramoth-Gilead and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. Verse 11. And then the picture is that with these iron horns on his head, the prophet begins a, a, a sort of pantomime of a running around like a bull, goring the enemies of the people of God. Now, on the one hand, if you're Jehoshaphat and you're sitting there while this is going on, he might have noticed that the man actually had some biblical support. In fact, he clearly was responding to something that was found, in fact, in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 33, 13 to 17, records Moses putting his blessing, right as the tribes of Israel are about to go into the land, the various tribes got a blessing, and the blessing on the tribes of Joseph, that's Ephraim and Manasseh, the two leading tribes of the northern kingdom, Moses said this, that God had promised rich lands for them to enjoy, and he compared Ephraim to a firstborn bull with the horns of a wild ox, and he will gore the peoples, all of them to the ends of the earth. Deuteronomy thirty-three seventeen. So Zedekiah seems to be consulted. What he says is consistent. So it seems with the Bible. And yet Jehoshaphat has some reasons to be suspicious. The problem actually was not the outrageous behavior. True prophets would do similar things, by the way, if you read the Old Testament but rather that he didn't quite get it right. The horns were iron horns on his head, and Jehoshaphat would have known that iron horns happened to be the emblems of the false god Baal. You know how often that is with false teachers. There's a, public, there's a plausible biblical new, you know, sense to it, but it's just not quite right. Well, it was enough for Jehoshaphat to be suspicious and he apparently had enough perspective to recognize false prophets when he saw them. And so he inquired if there might be a different prophet with a message that might be, well, more orthodox. Here's what he says in verse 6. Is there not here another prophet of the Lord of whom we may inquire? Now, the implication is that he has not yet seen a prophet of the Lord. Now this shows wisdom. These false prophets, their claims were worthless. And yet, continuing in the background was this greater folly. How foolish it was even to, to expect that you can have a conversation with Ahab on these terms. One commentator notes the continued folly of trying to get a Baal worshiper to think like a believer in God. Well, it turned out, however, that Ahab did have such a man. And he replied, but I hate him. Verse 7, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but always evil. Well, this scene of Jehoshaphat, a glorious and godly king of the house of David in Jerusalem, here holding court with wicked Ahab before a troop of prancing false prophets, 
uh, provides an embarrassing but instructing example of how false spiritual union results in a believer's compromised witness. It's sometimes been said, very helpfully I think, that it is to be the world that is being shaped by the church, not the church that is being shaped by the world. We see, once you start with a compromise, once you accept unity, Apart from the basis of truth, it is the wrong version of that. It is the church that begins being shaped by the world, and the church can no longer shape the world. Now, one way you see this is how Jehoshaphat, I hate to say rather lamely, responds, still trying to to, to get a good spiritual relationship going with a man who's an absolute apostate. Uh, Ahab has has expressed his hatred for the true prophet and tepidly, verse 7, Jehoshaphat says, let not the king say so. It's like having a totally blasphemous person and lamely saying, oh, oh, please don't take the name of the Lord in vain. That's what people like him do. It's what they're trained to do, what they're committed to do. They should not be there with you. Andrew Stewart puts it this way, when God's people associate with apostasy, they will always compromise their witness. It was impossible for Jehoshaphat to be anything other than ineffective as a standard bearer of truth because his very presence in Ahab's court had compromised his position. Now, to be fair, it is commendable that he sought something like a true prophet, but only after he had already promised unity apart from truth. He'd given royal sanction to this parade of false prophets trumpeting their support of wicked King Ahab's ambition. Once he had made his fatal initial compromise, it was not Jehoshaphat who was influencing Ahab. Oh, no. It was Ahab who was drawing Judah's godly king into his web. And it's always difficult to stand apart from the ungodly, those who would deny God's word, but our witness requires that we do so. And yet the Lord is merciful to his servants, and Jehoshaphat is a great servant of the Lord, however foolish. Here in Ahab's court, the Lord's mercy was seen in the sheer fact that there actually was a true prophet there in the court of Ahab. It was mercy to the wicked king. And God is merciful to the wicked when he causes his word to be spoken. It was mercy to godly Jehoshaphat. Here's how Ahab answered, verse 7, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah the son of Imlah, but I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but always evil. Now in Ahab's religious world, his configuration, it works this way. The man who sits on the throne, the man who pays the bills, has the right to determine what a prophet says. But in Micaiah, we find a different sort of man than Ahab was used to. He stood on a different principle, that God is the one who has the right to speak the word of God. Davis explains Micaiah's conviction. He says the word of God is free and cannot be manipulated by kings or messengers or even slick prophets. Whatever word the Lord gives his prophet, this is what the prophet must speak. Micaiah in this way would prove to be a forerunner to the Apostle Paul. I've often thought as a pastor of Paul's philosophy of ministry, which should be our philosophy of ministry, it is our philosophy of ministry, centered on the straightforward proclamation and teaching of scriptural truth. You find it in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 2. 
Uh, Paul lays down a principle that every preacher should follow. He says this, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. In vernacular terms, Paul's saying the preacher should not get into the pulpit, lick his finger, and stick it up into the wind to see who's there, to see which way the wind's blowing, and then deciding it's just a, sometimes it's just a, a subtle trimming of the sails, but that sends the ship in an entirely different direction. No, the open statement of truth from the Word of God, commending ourselves to the consciences of men. That is a biblical philosophy of ministry. Now, our admiration for this prophet Micaiah only grows when we appreciate all that he's up against, really two things. First, this servant of God was terribly isolated. Maybe you've been isolated as a Christian. Nobody else is around to share your perspective. No one's going to say amen when you speak. That's what Micaiah was like. He's amidst this great throng of false Baal-worshipping prophets as the sole dissenting voice. And Christians today who stand for God's word but refuse to bend to conventional wisdom, which today will be pagan wisdom, maybe on the college campus, maybe in the halls of the media, well, you will find encouragement in the valor of godly Micaiah. He might have succumbed to the pressure, wondering. He might have wondered, maybe something was wrong with him. You probably felt that way. Is it just me? Am I just obstinate? But he knew that he had received his message by revelation from God. You can know that if your message is found in the Bible. If it's the biblical message, you, like Micaiah, may know, no, it's not some quirk of my nature, as they are saying. It's not some Luther hero complex I'm engaged in as if that would be a bad thing. The, uh, no, it's, it's the revelation of the word of God. I know it because it comes from the Bible. He knew that. Uh, Mar- uh, Andrew Seward writes, isolation in a godless world is demoralizing. This is why we need to seek the fellowship of like-minded believers. Let me say to you, if you're going to that college campus, if you're going into a workplace, if you're in the media or politics in a place where it will seem to be you against them all, you must seek out Christian fellowship. You must find a a Bible-believing, faithful, Christ-following church. And above all, Stuart says, above all, you must keep your fellowship with God. Your time in the Word, your times of prayer are irreplaceable. He was isolated, but he was not alone. Moreover, the true prophet was hated by those in power. He was isolated and he was despised. Now, the reason Ahab hated him is because he would not toe the line. He insisted on stating truths the king did not want to hear. And people in Ahab's case often are not used to hearing things they don't like. The ego is involved, their royal prerogative. And he hated him for speaking truth, truths that called out sin, truths that told the truth of a need for repentance, truth that offered God's blessing only on condition of an obedient faith. I hate him, said the king, whose bloody record showed that he could back that up with more than words. For he never prophesied good concerning me, but always evil. Well, when prophets, when preachers and witnesses speak, stand in Micaiah's despised shoes today, 
Don't be surprised if you get a similar reaction, but we may rely on the Lord to protect us and to prosper our witness with supernatural power. And dear Ralph Davis notes that a faithful pastor's most courageous moments will often take place not in the pulpit, but in his study. He gives an example. A couple arrives seeking to get married, but it becomes clear that one of them, say the bride, is not actually a believer in Jesus. Now, what's going to happen to that pastor if he refuses, if he declines to perform the wedding, if he urges the bride that her urgent need is salvation to be forgiven of her sins through faith in the blood of Jesus? What if he does what is his duty and appeals to the groom of his duty to obey the word of God? Well, the pastor knows what is likely to happen. He's going to be pressured by family members in the church, perhaps by church leaders with connections to that family. It will be pointed out to him repeatedly that, you know, there's other ministers who don't have these narrow scruples that you have. We can get someone else. The bride, maybe she compromises. This will almost always happen, by the way. After the wedding, I promise I'll start going to church. That is a bad deal when it's after the wedding. I have learned, by the way, that that uh, conversions that suddenly take place when there is an earthly motive for that conversion usually tend to be false. Weddings provide the chief example of them. But how dare he impose restrictions of that nature? Does Does he not know that many people are upset? Why, there will be some who leave the church over it. In fact, that is almost certain to happen. Well, under such a barrage of pressure, how many godly men, faithful servants otherwise, they compromise against the teaching of God's word that they know. Davis comments, the pressure to compromise the word of God may come at the gate of Samaria, but it repeatedly comes in the pastor's study. By the way, it comes to parents at the dinner table too, does it not? A similar scenario comes into your life. Well, David says Micaiah would understand. He knew that the loneliness of God's man is the corollary to the freedom of God's word. God's word must not be bound. It must be sovereign. That will produce loneliness and often hatred for those who uphold it. Well, Micaiah is praised because even under these great pressures, he fulfilled his calling with faithfulness. In fact, look at verse 12. They've got the pressure upon him. Even when he's on the way, the messenger gives him, shall we say, some friendly advice. Behold, the words of the prophets with one accord are favorable to the king. Let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. Let me give you some advice, Micaiah. Don't rock this boat. The king wants Ramoth-Gilead. You get in the way, you're going to be crushed. That's the interpretation. Well, Micaiah would not go along. He receives faithful resolve is seen in his reply. As the Lord lives, what my God says, that I will speak. Verse 13. Well, finally, the true prophet is brought into the presence of the enthroned kings. And when he had come to the king, Ahab said to him, Micaiah, Shall we go to Ramoth-Gilead to battle, or shall I refrain? And perhaps to everyone's surprise, he said the same thing. The false prophet said, Go up and triumph. They will be given into your hand, verse 14. Now, in a scene that is almost comical, Ahab objects to this. He knew it couldn't be true. 
if the prophet spoke blessing for him from the true and holy God. He answers him in verse 15. How many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Well, this instigates Micaiah to speak the truth. He said, I saw, here's his message. I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, they ha- these have no master. Let each return to his home in peace, verse 16. You see, the true method foretold Ahab's death and the dismay of the scattered people, a message of judgment on the wicked king from the holy God on whose behalf the prophet spoke the truth. Now, if you're saying, what's going on here? I'm sorry, but you have to wait until the next sermon. As we, the explanation is going to be found. This is a good cliffhanger, I suppose. But it's according to the will of the Lord. What we should note now is his faithfulness in delivering an unpopular truth before a worldly despot of deadly power. Many other such prophets had already lost their lives through that kind of plain speech to wicked Ahab. But he not only knew the word of God, he knew the God of the word. You see, that's the key. That's how we speak the word of God, because we know the God of the word. We know that he is faithful, that he is sovereign, that he is mighty, and he will save faithful prophets like this man. Well, as we consider faithful Micaiah prophesying God's truth in the setting of such deadly peril, I hope our minds are already being drawn to the true prophet, the great prophet of them all. In his similar situation, I refer to the Lord Jesus Christ. As he was dragged by the apostate religious leaders in the trial, the Jewish trial of the apostate high priest on the night of his arrest. Oh, they knew that they had held Jesus' life in the balance and they spoke with malice. The high priest demanded, Matthew twenty six sixty three, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. You see, if Jesus agreed, that meant a tortuous death, the certainty of it. And yet in answer to that question, far more momentous than Ahab's inquiry about the outcome of a battle, Jesus spoke the truth because the world so greatly needed to hear it. He answered, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Well, for that truth, the true message of a Savior, a divine Savior, about whom the world does not wish to hear, Jesus Christ died on the cross in such anguish before God. But he spoke the truth, even to his dying breath, because he spoke for God his Father. But there's another reason why Jesus was faithful to that message given to him, faithful in dying on the cross. And let me refer to those words of Micaiah. We'll close with this in verse 16. He's pointing us forward. He says, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. Do you remember hearing Jesus saying that over and over in the Gospels? His compassion on his people. Jesus was speaking as Savior virtually those same words. And he spoke and he acted God's truth because he was going to gather them. He was going to gather them from our sin by paying the penalty of our sin on the cross. Through his forgiveness, we would be gathered 
safe in the fold of God. Well, if the example of Micaiah inspires us to take our lonely stand in in faithfulness to God in the midst of a world that hates his word, dare I say the message of Jesus compels us even more strongly. You see, the message that's been committed to us, you and I are not the prophet Micaiah. Oh, hopefully in many ways we are like him in his faithfulness, but his message is not our message. Our message is the only message by which the world can hear of the gospel and be saved. And the motive of Christ's own saving compulsion should impel us faithfully to deliver its message. It's an unpopular message telling people that their problem is sin. And their only remedy for sin is surrender in faith to God's Son as he paid that penalty on our behalf on the cross. But our Lord Jesus has charged us out of his great compassion to a commission that we must not fail. We will not fail by the power of his grace. He said to us, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Father in heaven, we thank you that we will never be alone. We thank you for your spirit that dwelt in the heart of Micaiah, that faithful prophet long ago. Oh, in such a dark and wicked place. Father, help us to learn the lessons of dearly beloved Jehoshaphat. Not to be swept from the truth by sentimental visions of what we might do. Uh, perhaps an unwillingness to assess the situation by the clear grid of your word. But Father, help us to be like Micaiah. Or there's people in this room, people hearing my voice, who really do seem to be alone. Uh, They are on the college campus. They're in the classroom with a scoffer um, trying to badger them out of their faith. They're in the workplace today where increasingly a witness for Jesus is at the peril of our vocation. Well, Father, give us good judgment. Help us through your word not to commit folly like that of Jehoshaphat, compromising unity over truth but father bless us with the ability to stand alone yes with jesus if need be despised but make us faithful because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of christ make ours the lips that speak it we pray in jesus name amen